All right, welcome back to another interview episode of Breakthrough Marketing Secrets. I'm really excited because as far as I know, you are the first group of copywriters that are getting to hear directly from our guest. And yet at the same time, he has so much uh, to, to help copywriters and marketers who are crafting persuasive messages to succeed. And so, Bill, we'll get into your your... Uh, your bio in a second here, but I want to start. When I was going through your new book, Writing for Impact, there was a quote that jumped out at me. Engaging writing is reward-filled writing. So what do you mean by that? And how does that inform our approach to writing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that's the meat of the book. Uh, I like to say that the mantra that you should take away from my book is reward your reader. And and what does that mean? Um, since I, I examined a mountain of of research from psychologists and neuroscientists around the world. What that means is two things. It's it's the general meaning as as we'd all understand it. You know, a reward is just something nice you get for some something you did well. But in, in neuroscience, a reward is actually a a a process in the brain where dopamine is released. It it evaluates what it's what it's receiving, which in the case of writing is words, deciding whether it's worthy. And and in the best cases, there's actually dopamine releasing a little bit of natural opioids in the brain to give people pleasure. So reward-filled writing is our objective. That's how you engage people. The, the reward in the brain is how people are motivated to do anything. And you want to motivate them, obviously, not just to, to start reading, but to keep reading. Yeah. And no matter the style of writing, it, you know, this the, the idea of like a, a novel is a page turner, right? Like what's right, on the next exactly. page? Right. That's the kind of writing that we want to pull people in. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, uh, Bill Burchard is a writer, writing coach, and book consultant. He was once a magazine editor and later a freelance journalist for Fast Company, CFO, and Strategy and Business. He writes today about the neuroscience and psychology of writing. His most recent book, which I highly recommend, I've been through it already, it just came out, is Writing for Impact, Eight Secrets from Science that Will Fire Up Your Reader's Brains, and it reveals how to transform your writing with these science-based strategies. Uh, earlier books include Stairway to Earth, Merchants of Virtue, Nature's Keepers, The One Minute Meditator, and Counting What Counts, and his work for other authors includes 10 books of nonfiction about management, health, economics, business, policy, technology, and the environment, and he's from Amherst, New Hampshire. <laughs> um, okay. uh, yeah, Bill, Bill. Um, so I think that a lot of us are maybe familiar with this, um, with the experience of the reward circuit and the dopamine, mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. of that going off. Um, so, uh, but, but just so we understand that, so we can recognize when we've had those experiences our, ourselves, what does that impactful writing feel like to the reader? Yeah, right. Uh, oftentimes it, it doesn't feel like, anything exactly. I mean, what's happening is your brain is motivating you all the time to do different things. And you may not feel the motivation, but you make the decision based on what the brain is processing. The brain says, hey, this is a fantastic word, or this is a fantastic phrase, or this is a fantastic idea. I want to pursue it. And the dopamine is telling you to do that. So um, that, that may not feel a lot like anything. That's sort of an unconscious process. However, however, if you really, really hit it right, the dopamine then triggers the release of natural opioids in five different what's called pleasure hotspots in the brain. These are places 
that that when the 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 uh, the opioid is released make you feel pleasure. Simple as that. And in the best of cases, of course, you're going to feel things like tingles and goosebumps and 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 a chill down the spine. Um, wouldn't we all like to do that? You know, in every paragraph. Of course, we're not going to, but you can you can activate that circuit continuously, phrase to phrase, sentence to sentence, to get people to follow what you're reading and keep reading. And I should say that the, the reward circuit is, is serves, serves several purposes. It, it creates desire, it creates pleasure, and it creates the, the, the desire to learn. Because what is the reward circuit for? Evolutionarily, we had to have something in our brain that made us want to do things and made us want to learn things so that we survived and thrived. And this is like a paleo part of the brain. This is right in the center of your head. This is this, we share this with other animals. This is really, really an ancient part of the brain. And 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 we are ruled by it. Absolutely. So so there's this this ancient part of the brain that the, the reward circuit that that drove us, I suppose, like um uh, for for whatever reason, pre-human animals needed to go do something in order to survive right uh, there was this right. this need for pursuit this need to to go after something and um there had to be a reinforcement of that pursuit behavior as well right right All exactly in the brain and that leads us to like the development of those structures in the brain are like they they predate language right but exactly, they can yeah. feed our 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 consumption of language, I suppose. Um, this reminds me, so Marty Edelston, very famous entrepreneur, the late Marty Edelston, founded Boardroom Inc., uh, which you may also know as Bottom Line Brands. Uh, so they did Bottom Line Personal, Bottom Line Health, all of that. Um, huge direct mailer for, for a very long time. And uh, he said when he reviewed a piece of marketing copy, uh, his his biggest question that he asked was, does this make me vibrant? And I feel like it's the exact same thing. Exactly. Like there's there, there's not a a specific reaction necessarily that you're looking mm -hmm. for because certain copy may, if it makes you feel anxious, it's vibration. vibration. Mm -hmm. If it makes you feel excited about something, it's vibration, right? Um, so yeah, I, I just, exactly. I just think so of that in the context of this. Yeah, yeah. So I think what you're saying is is what I like to say in the book is when we consume language, we distinguish between what's great and what isn't great in the same way we when we consume anything else, you know, whether it's a donut or it's it's a desire to have a friend or it's to build shelter, or it's to have sex. It, it doesn't matter. We're, we're consuming that. And the brain then is evaluating the prospect of consuming that the pleasure we get from consuming that and what we learn from consuming that and that and we are driven we are driven moment to moment to do that absolutely and it's 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 so self reinforcing so um at a high level in writing for impact you broke down impactful compelling interesting writing into eight strategies that have been revealed by science right, right. and these these are all like in the book it's great because you have like study after study coming at each of these from a different angle um, and that's and how to use them right but can we start by just listing out these eight strategies yeah, and then yeah. we can get into them a little bit deeper yeah yeah absolutely I, I would say up front that I isolated eight strategies that that I felt came out of the research that I looked at I, I scooped up every 
scientific paper I could find that was looking at what people, what pe what happened to people when they were reading. It could be experiments yeah. that they behaved differently. It could be experiments where they were taking um, MRI images of their brain. And 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 out of that came um, support for these eight strategies. When I started, I actually had a couple that were different, and they weren't supported, so I got rid of them. Um, but but I so I, I I went in with a bit of a hypothesis, right? I've been a writer my whole life. Um, I, I had an idea what worked. I had an idea of what the principles were. Um, I wanted to put them to the test. Does the science show that these are real? Do these really work? Um, uh, one didn't. One I completely changed. But anyway, so I'll, I'll list the eight of them that I think are, are really stand tall among what I think are the the drivers of of reward in the brain. Hold on. Uh, can I interject and, and ask sure. which one got kicked out? Like, what was the assumption that got kicked out? Well, one was that, okay, so I should first say that um, the eight are all, all begin with an S, right? So they're my eight S's. Yeah. Um, so um, the one was style. I mean, I, all of them are keep it something, right? Keep it simple, keep it specific. Let me list them all and then I'll come back. Keep it, okay. keep it simple, keep it specific. These are going to sound familiar, right? Keep it surprising. Yes. Um, keep it stirring. That is some emotion in there. Keep it seductive. And in my case, that means um, create anticipation and suspense. Um, keep it uh, smart, which in my case means drive a hops, drive insight, not just information. Don't just deliver information, deliver insights. Uh, keep it social, which is get some humanity in there, some social connection. We're all driven by that. And finally, uh, keep it story driven, right? That's sort of the symphony of all the other strategies put together, plus a little bit more. So uh, originally I had uh, keep it stylish. I thought, you know, your own kind of personal voice and um, kind of some clever wording. And, and in the end, there were actually are some research where scientists have tried that, but they couldn't pin it down. I mean, what the hell does that mean? What does style mean? And then it was For not sure. clear that that did drive the reward circuit, although I think it does. I mean, that might be another S sometime somebody else could add and find the research on, but I couldn't. So I dumped it. And what I realized I was missing, on the other hand, was keep it social, which is, we could get into the detail of that, but it's like you want to create a human connection. And there's a particular way in reading, because of course, when people are reading, they're not with other people. Generally, they're all by themselves with the author's words in front of them. And that, 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 that became very, very important um, stimulant in the book. Uh, another one is when I started with keep it seductive, I thought, well, that means that sh you should, and I, these, some of these are from my experiments. I, intuitively, I was thinking these things are important. You should play to sort yeah. of the aspirations and the sort of the, the, the higher, the higher road and the lower road of being man, because everybody's interested in the sins and aspirations of others. But then I realized, and that may be true, right? So there could be another rest for that. But in the end, it, it became clear that what seduction really means at the basis in writing is creating anticipation. And then lo and behold, there's a whole specialty in neuroscience and psychology that studies anticipation and how important that is and how rewarding that is, in fact. I really love that focus on anticipation specifically for copywriters, because a lot of us that write longer copy for more complex offers, one of the things that we're required to do is really play to the anticipation because uh, I often say the first sale you have to make is the readership sale, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do you get someone engaged with a message that is a few thousand words long, as opposed to like a short ad for, you know, a 30 second spot or something, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, 
And, and the, the lessons learned around the keep it seductive uh, really, really do uh, play that up. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. You know, I, because I, I, I think some of these two bits are just fun. Um, so the classic yeah. experiment in anticipation is done by Laura, uh, George Lowenstein when he was at the University of Chicago, and he asked thirty students a lot of questions. And I'm I'm referring to the data here. Um, what what they would what they thought of consuming some good and bad outcomes. And one of the good outcomes was receiving a kiss from the 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 celebrity of your choice. And then the question yeah. was, okay, so that's the outcome. You got it. Okay. How much more will you pay if you can wait a day to get that same outcome? How much more will you pay if you wait three days? And he went on to how much more would you pay for a year? It turned out the students would all pay a little bit more to wait. And that's what's called anticipatory utility. Okay. This is an economics <laughs> thing, right? There's actually it's pleasure generated. And we now see this. In, in M functional MRI images, I can tell you more about the different MRIs, but functional MRI images showing that the reward circuit in the brain is really cranking when you're anticipating something and even anticipating something that's not so nice. And why is that? Because we learn, even if we don't get pleasure from, we learn. So we're driven, even sometimes for bad things, to enjoy the anticipation of them. Oh, so many different directions. One that uh, that's a completely counterintuitive. I, I, I guess you can come at it from the the other perspective and say, we all want instant gratification, right? So, mm -hmm. how much extra would you pay if this was supposed to happen in three days to move the date up to today? Mm -hmm. But somehow the students recognize that they would be that they would actually appreciate that time spent in anticipation. That's um, right. That's, that's right. They say that, you know, the scientists say the sum of the two, the anticipation, the pleasure of getting it and the pleasure of the anticipation sum to something greater. And we, we as human beings are wired to recognize or wired to feel that way that we, we are going to enjoy, we're going to get more out of this if we wait just a little bit. You know, it's the old thing of like, I'm going to yeah. save a, this piece of chocolate cake and eat it tomorrow. Absolutely. Yeah. Looking forward to that, that experience tomorrow. Yeah, right. So one of the, one of the things with anticipation, uh, you talked about, uh, you talked about negative versus positive news stories, right? Like, mm -hmm. and, and there is an anticipation and, um, I, I suppose this might be bleeding over into some of the other S's as well, because so many of them do. They, yes. They, right. Exactly. Uh, but 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 you talked about negative and positive news stories and how the anticipation circuits are are firing or I think it was negative and positive pictures anticipating a negative and positive picture. Um can you can you speak to that how anticipation isn't necessarily based on expectation of a positive result? Right right right. So so the reward story this is something that's pretty late late breaking science, you know, really kind of in the last 5 years that that when the, the reward circuit's operating, there's a separation between desire and pleasure. So there's it, it, when the dopamine's released, it's making you desire something. And then later, if you like it, you, you gain pleasure. And then you also learn from it. So what they did in this one experiment is they showed people pictures of, um, or, or no, they, they, they gave people captions of pictures that were going to show really awful stuff. And it turned yeah. out that a lot of people desired to see those pictures. So the dopamine was going. But when they got the pictures, they didn't like the pictures. They didn't get any pleasure. So, you know, this is interesting because this is 
a lot of the research in the reward circuit is done in relation to addiction, right? There's a desire yeah. there for a substance, but there's not necessarily pleasure in gaining it. When you're addicted, you're getting a, you're driven by dopamine to desire something, but you're not actually going to gain pleasure from it. And 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 the re, some of the most recent research with animals is that you can even get an animal to to repeatedly shock itself out of creating the desire for something that it doesn't end up getting. It gets a shock just because of the, the dopamine produces that desire. So um, yeah, it's all integrated. But anyway, that's that's the principle. So the, the, the reward circuit is driving a lot of things that that in turn also, I recall, um, drive learning because learning is the, the ultimate thing. Pleasure, pleasure in the reward circuit is really just an incentive for the human to gain something that's better for themselves. And often that's just to learn something. Yeah, for sure. Uh, oh, now now I don't have, I didn't transfer this into my call notes. Let's see if I can grab it really quick. There was another quote where you said that there's an evolutionary drive in your brain to continuously update your grasp of reality. Uh, and I think that was associated with the smart part, right? Mm -hmm. That that we, um, even if the information is not that relevant, um, there there's there's something that pulls us, or not that beneficial. I think was the point. There's something that pulls us to that discovery of new information. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Discovery happens all the time. You know, um, there's there's been some there's some some great experiments with in the in the uh, the chapter you're referring to. There's some great experiments related to trivia. You know, why yeah. why do you why do you want to know? Why are you driven to know the answer of, uh, of trivial, trivial, um, trivial um, questions? Um, yes. And and we're we're just driven to 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 whether whether we gain from them at all. We gain nothing from trivia. Usually a little yuck, you know, maybe, but we gain nothing <laughs> nothing of great human value. But we're driven to to follow that trivia. And there's a huge number of experiments that show that 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 people are driven to follow it. Anything they where they think they can learn, even if this it's not learning something of value. Absolutely. So I, I want to talk to a couple of the other S's and and I'm gonna leave it a little bit open to you for any any studies or interesting other research you wanted to cover. But I, I do want to share one thing um that actually comes out of our field. So a colleague and client of mine uh runs a very large investment newsletter business. Mm -hmm. And this is in reference to keep it simple, runs a very large investment newsletter business. And at one point, they did some research about renewal rates of these different investment newsletters. Now, you would presume the renewal rates are going to be based on investment performance or maybe uh -huh. how much you like the, the person who's writing the newsletter, things like that. They did an analysis of the Flesh Kincaid scores oh, of really? all of the different writers and renewal rates went up. As um, <laughs> as simplicity went down up to the point of about a seven point five, so seven, roughly seventh to eighth oh, yeah. grade reading level um, or lower, had the highest renewal rates, independent of investment performance or anything like that. Um, and arguably, that's just because you feel like you can get it better, and there's a yeah, reward right. to to getting right, it. Right, 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 um, right. I don't know if you want to speak about any of the other research into simple or into yeah, other ones. Yeah, I, you know, this is funny because this turns people, the simplest things turn, turn, the, turn people on, right? So um, yeah. there's lots of experiments to show that simple things 
appeal to people. And what's what's interesting is again, this is a, this is driven in part by the reward circuit. You are getting a dopamine hit, and if it's simple enough, where, where someone really gets to the gist in just a few words, you know, maybe you know nobody's measured this, but maybe you're even getting a little hit of natural opioid. You're you're you are driven. It's a primal impulse to seek out, to seek out consume and enjoy simple things. So one simple experiment, very simple experiment, is a, uh, a researcher in Berlin, Angela Frederici, she did, a, did an experiment I like to cite where she, she asked people to read complex sentences and simple sentences. And the complexity in one case was simply putting the object before the subject. So it's kind of a passive voice thing. Instead of saying investors love profits, you're, you're saying profits are loved by investors. Well, one has four words, one three. But, but beside that, what they found is that when, when you have those kind of senses, it takes the reader one tenth of a second longer. That's only 100 milliseconds, right? Less than a snap of finger. Yeah. But, but it's one tenth of a second longer to understand that sentence. And, and, uh, people only get uh, comprehend at ninety percent, and I can't I can't even remember how that's that's uh, measured, but ninety percent as well with a more complex sentence. So add that up. You know how many sentences are in anything you're writing, right? And everyone takes a tenth of a cent longer, and people are only understanding it ninety percent as well. I mean that's a that's a huge disadvantage. See, I mean yeah, you you got to keep it simple. Let's see. There's another experiment I wanted to talk about. Um, there was an experiment by a, a a researcher that compared marketing pitches. One was uh, for the branding, the four bulleted branding points of a company uh, using adjectives. And uh, let me refer here. It was broadened knowledge versus broad knowledge. Okay, sounds pretty subtle, doesn't it? Yeah. Analyze and diagnose versus analytical and diagnostic. Okay, adjectives versus verbs. And yeah. the, again, the people didn't. The people this, these experiments don't know why they're being asked these questions. These all seem like kind of crazy, dumb questions, right? But what <laughs> happened is the is the the groups of people that got the verbs instead of the um, the adjectives believe that the companies that they were reviewing were more effective. And I say this because adjectives are usually add-ons. They make your sentences longer, right? So you you yeah. want to want to go with you want to go with nouns and verbs. You don't you don't want to go with um, adjectives and adverbs. I mean, obviously there's a place for them. There's a place for them, but yeah, um, it's really interesting. I think there's there's a lot of back and forth that I've heard over the years for for the use of adjectives and and adverbs in marketing. In fact, there are there's like a book called Words That Sell that that not all of it, but there are large chunks like pages full of essentially a, a thesaurus of different adjectives and adverbs that you can layer into your language to supposedly make it more compelling. But the science says that if no. you can focus on the action, if you can focus on the verb, as right. opposed to the the um, adding on the meaning through adjectives and adverbs, um, modifying the meaning that way, that it's more effective. Right, like right, <laughs> right, 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 right. There's a there's another just to give you another because this is based on science. We know these kind of things, but these are based on science. There's a there is a professor in uh, Japan that that actually took two write ups of how to exercise for better health and tested people with them. One was the one put out by the authorities and the other one was just used simpler language, said exactly the same thing. And it turned out that after people read that, how did they feel after that? This, this, 
this relates to the reward circuit, but I think it's fascinating. How did they feel? They actually felt, the people of the more simple version, actually felt they were more likely, as in, in psychology, they call, they call it higher self-efficacy. They felt they were more able to actually perform those exercises, just because it had state, been stated more simply. In, in, in the science, this is called processing fluency. This is what scientists measure. How process fluent is it? Um, and, and, and the more processing fluency you create, the more you're rewarded, you're, more you're rewarding your reader. This isn't just a matter of effort. This, this is a matter of driving dopamine and other neurotransmitters in the brain. Yeah, for sure. Um, there, was, there was another bit of research, and I think it was from one of the, the, the later S's, one of the later sections, um, where it talked about it was related to medical textbook language, and it was mm -hmm. talking about oh, yeah. the heart um, and and describing it from a very removed perspective versus getting someone to uh, using language around your heart, et cetera, and that impacted yeah. comprehension. Can, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, no, that's that? a, yeah, yeah. That, that's a terrific one. You know, one of the things I put in my cat chapter on keeping it social which doesn't yeah. exactly follow the, re the research in that chapter, but I thought was important to connect it to the social issue is why, why is it effective to use the second person, you, instead of yes. the first I or the third, he and, sh he and she? Why is that? I mean, I I people don't completely know. They have theories, which I'll get to. But this, so this experiment was testing that. There were some scientists that were, were, were uh, that gave people two write-ups of how the respiratory system works, the inhalation phase, the oxygen exchange phase, and the exhalation phase. And in one version, they, they used the, and, and in 12 places, they replaced, replaced the with your. Okay, that's all I did. Yeah. Everything else was to say, I'm going to read you a fragment here so that you can understand this. Otherwise, that sounds pretty pretty abstract. During inhaling, the, or alternatively your, diaphragm moves down, creating more space for the, or alternatively your lungs. Air enters through the, or your, nose or mouth, moves down through the, or your throat, and bronchial tubes to tiny air sacs in the, or your lungs, and so on. Okay, it goes on like yeah. that. So what happened? They had two. They had two sets of people here, identical, identical language except for the and your. And what happened is, <clears throat> the group that had the your, the your group, was substantially had uh, understood substantially more than the the group. And the and and they also were able to apply that in testing afterwards as to how that would make a difference in healthcare, substantially more. So identical information. Now, one of the things the scientists say is if you use the, or you, you know, you'll, you might use he or she, actually, I think that yeah. this is not an experiment, but I believe this would be exactly the same effect. You are, you are invoking what they call an observer perspective. Your readers are, are imagining observing this lung going in and out. Someone else's lung, right? Going in and out and oxygen yeah. exchange and all. Where if you put your in there, you're imagining your lungs going in and out. All of a sudden, you're in a participant perspective. So that's a that's a little long-winded way to say that, yeah, that's why copywriters should use you <laughs> instead of me. I mean, they should use the yeah. second person and not the third person and, and probably not the first person either. Of course, yeah. You know, and for certain, for yeah, certain other factors always come into play, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. 
for certain things, it seems like there's, <clears throat> there's probably also some kinesthetic processing, like with that language, it's, it's just sheerly intellectual versus, uh, like I was, I was breathing in and noticing my diaphragm going down <laughs> and my lungs being given more room as you were reading it when right. you said your, um, and, and there's that automatic, like, uh, internal reference that comes out of that. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Well, so you say that, I, I, you know, stop me if you like, but uh, th that brings up what I think is um, one of the most important S's in the book, and that is keep it specific. Now, that sounds like, well, yeah, basic writing, you know, keep it specific, use specific instead of abstract and vague language. But, the, but what's important to learn from science is that when you keep things specific, what happens is the brain reenacts in the neurons for that specificity what you're saying. Where if you keep it abstract, they don't. So example, I tell you, I washed, I washed the, the counter in the kitchen today. Okay. Compare that to I scoured the tabletops. What happens yeah. in your brain? Scour activates the muscles in the, the neurons that act that, that are in charge of moving the scouring muscles in your hand. And tabletop um, activates the visual circuits. Those actually reenact what what you're saying so understand that the the primary and traditional language uh processing part of the brain is on the left side of the brain starting behind the ear that's it that's the that's the classic place the language process but when you spe use specifics you engage the motor system like i just did when you when i said that you this happened to you just across like a hairband across the top of your head and the visual in the back of your head, and, and and if you use and if you invoke the other senses, senses whether it's touch or smell or hearing, you're making neurons elsewhere in the brain other than in the language circuits activate. You create sort of this larger brain buzz, and I think we all can feel that, right? Or at least you can imagine you can feel that, and that then becomes fodder for the reward circuit to really grab onto and say, "I want more of this language." Yeah, absolutely. So that's it's really interesting that like we now with the benefit of modern technology can actually look at brains as they process this different type of language and right. see that even though we know that the language shows up in one particular area of the brain, an entire brain can light up with the right choice of of content and use of language. And so your um your reader is engaged on just a completely different level. Right. So my right, right. my audience is is gonna kill me if I don't at least talk about the story driven part a little sure, bit. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what, I love to talk about that. There, yeah. Was there a particular study or studies from the story driven? Yeah. Part yeah. 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 Absolutely. I, the, I like to think it's the story. It's the final S in the book, right? And there's a good reason for that is because in part it's a collection of all the other S's. Or it can be a collection of all the others. It's kind of the symphony and the other other chapters of the the players. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to demean the other S's because they're all extremely important, but they often play into story. And but there's there's certain things about stories that make them particularly special. And and scientists don't completely understand this. But let me let me give you an example, or give you a few examples of what the research has uh, shown. One is that yes. when I start to tell you a story, or you start to tell, you did, you told a story early on. When you start to tell a story, what happened in my brain? Well, we know, scientists can see that the firing in your brain, the pattern of that firing was duplicated in my brain. I became coupled with your brain 
I was entrained by what you said, just by you starting on a story saying, oh, there was once a time when, you know, so-and-so, immediately your brain starts to activate my brain in exactly the same way. Not only, not only that, but what's so fascinating is if you tell me that story and I go tell um, my neighbor that story this afternoon, my neighbor's brain will activate in the same way. Now that's entrainment. Now we don't know entirely what that means, but you can tell that's pretty impactful, right? So there's another yeah. issue I like to get at is that when you tell a story, the longer you go on, now there's a limit to this, right? Especially in copywriting. But the longer you go on, the more entrained you get. They can actually see that the brain fires more intensely. So that's of interest, I think, as well. Um, the, the other thing that's great about stories is that, and, and uh, this is intuitive, but now we've, we've proven this with science, is you actually remember them better. Um, there's been some large studies, meta studies, as they call them in science, where they've accumulated 30, 40 different studies and looked at all of them and what they all show. And they all show that you remember stories, uh, you remember the information when it comes in stories better. So um, that, that's the power of stories. And um, when, when, you're, when you intuitively think that they're really going to grab the reader, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's activating the brain in a very, very special way. And that, of course, is absolutely something you want to shoot for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple different angles that, that I want to hit with that real quick. Um, I mean, one of the great things about story is, is how it is recruiting all of the different essence. Mm -hmm. So if I tell a story that involves my emotional experience around something, it's going to keep it stirring. If I tell a story, I'm drawn yeah. to specifics, right? Yeah. Um, that that uh, in telling the story, most often there is going to be some element of specifics that that pull the reader in. Mm -hmm. uh, and there can be surprising elements. It's often a good story is full of surprise. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and there's anticipation inherent in just the beginning mm -hmm. of a story. Mm -hmm. Oh man, that reminds Absolutely. me of the time when, right. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. So story is, like I say, it's sort of like the symphony, you know, one little, one little addendum there that I think is kind of interesting is there's also some research been done as to whether true stories reward people more than fictional stories. And yes. so there was one experiment done where they actually had people read um, the same story and they told them right up front, one group of people, they told them the story was true and the other people, they told them it was false. Okay, it was fiction, right? And yeah. who enjoyed the story more? It turned out they enjoyed it equally. It didn't matter whether they, they knew it was true or false. They got engaged by the story structure. That's how crazy human beings are. That's how crazily wired we are to love stories. Now, um, you know, there's the, 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 the question out there is, well, would they act on it and would they learn from it uh, in the same way? I don't know that. But in terms of whether they felt immersed, they reported whether they liked the story and they were hooked by it, identical. So, you know, in, in you know, like in copyright, I do this in writing books, right? Sometimes you, you don't have an actual story, but you can yeah. conjure something that is, you know, absolutely reflects people's experience and you dra dramatize it. And yeah, that story has exactly the same immersion impact on the reader or on the, the listener is the, the true one. That's excellent. And the other thing that you mentioned in your book is, is uh, media doesn't necessarily matter either. So there's right. this, this assumption maybe that writing isn't as interesting because now we have TVs and all of that. But when people 
engaged with the same story through written media versus other media, they're still having that same resonance, that same um, exactly. reward seeking. Exactly, exactly. And there's one study, and I think this is what you're referring to. There's one study that compared people getting the same story. Obviously, that wasn't verbatim. It couldn't be um, via writing. Um, I, I think I have this right, via listening and, and watching it on video. Okay, video obviously has sound and color and action and people and all that. And, and then they asked people which ones they were most engaged by. And it turned out that the people did say that they thought the video was more engaging but the but the imaging of their brain, I think I've got this right. It was either imaging of their brain, it might have been their vitals, their heart rate, et cetera, that also indicates how aroused they are, was, yeah. was just as great in the written story that they were reading as it was in the video. So underneath, the power of writing is still there. I mean, it's still there. Obviously, we get all these delectable things in video that we don't get in writing, but um, the power of story in terms of hooking people, grabbing their emotions, creating anticipation, um, firing them up with specifics, that's going to be there in your writing just as well as, as it is in video, which is reassuring, Absolutely. right? If you're doing writing for a living. <laughs> yes, yes. So I, I, I want to pivot a little bit uh, as we're approaching the end of our scheduled time here. How do you work? So we have, we have eight strategies backed by science yeah, that can yeah. help us write in more compelling ways, writing for impact in better right. ways, right? Right. right. Um, how do you actually work that into your writing process? How do you use this where the rubber meets the road, the pin hits the paper, the fingers yeah, yeah, type yeah, away on yeah. the keyboard? Yeah, very good question. I, you know, I, I think the first job in the first draft or the first sort of imaginings of what you're going to do is is to to be clear with what you want to say, right? You know, what do you want to say? And that may be pretty uncreative, right? But yeah. however you do it, you might do it with a metaphor, but usually you don't get there to the metaphor in the first go. You know, it's usually something uh, punier than that. You know, it's some pretty plain words that you're scratching around with. And and so it's 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 at that point you start to say, what can once you start to feel like you're, you you have some accurate notion of what you're going to say, that's when. And so I would think it's it, it, this happens as much in the editing as in the writing. Is how can I how can I make that simpler? Because it oh God, it was way too complicated on the first go, right? And how can I make it more specific? Because that word's just a little too abstract. I know I can do better with scour than I can do better than than with with wipe or wash um and and how can I uh, create anticipation and so on and and should I should I use a word that's tinged with a a little bit more emotion um uh and so on and 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 even to the point of saying now that I know what the message is can I adapt a story to show that um, so that's that's often how I do it. And I, I could say, especially in books, which you know are very long, very long projects, it's in the second draft, the third draft, the fourth draft, and, and then very late in the process where you come to these realizations, you go, oh my God, there's a terrific metaphor for that. That's often yeah. where the S's come because I think of these S's as the difference between moving writing that's 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 clear. So that's that's engaging. I use engaging in a more general sense than than uh, you would use it on social media. But um, how do you move it from one to the other? But I think you you have to get to the get to some clarity of what you want it, what your goals are, and what you want to say first, and and then you take right. off with these S's. 
I, th- I think I heard this from you. Um, I listened to the audiobook, by the way. So I'm, oh, I'm an audiobook person. So yeah, thank you uh, for doing that. Uh, um, I think I heard it from you that you actually talked about drafting as as or writing in, in kind of two separate steps. Like one step oh, yeah. is uh-huh. it is you're not actually trying to it, it it's like if if your draft for a document or for whatever it is is one word document you have a completely different word document that is just mm-hmm. trying to get the ideas out of your head as a way to right. kind of mental, mentally hack yourself. Right, so right. step one is just get everything out. And then step two is to um, assemble those raw materials into what you actually want to share with the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I very much, I think one of the one of the problems in, in writing probably of any length is the, the spaghetti problem. You get tangled up in 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 the spaghetti that you got first down on the page. And a lot of that shouldn't have even been there. You know, it's kind of like tripping over your own shoelaces because you don't realize that you tied them together early on and then you were ready to really step out. Um, so so I divide, I, I like I tell people to divide their writing into writing to think and writing to deliver. When, when you don't know go. what you want to say, when you don't have the clarity yet. You better not be. You better not be trying to fill that blank page. Just go. And you know, I think this is. It, it's it's similar to journaling, but I but I do think you do it with a goal. Journaling could be sort of free association over anything, but I, I think writing to think is you sort of uh, you, you're you're trying to get at what you want to say, but you're but you've made the decision that I'm not delivering anything in this document I'm writing. I'm just taking notes. I'm playing with words, etc. And then. And some of this could be, you know, you could use the same document later to 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 go to the phase of writing to deliver. But you, but really think about those th- two things separately, so you don't get so so the residue, so the clutter, so the spaghetti, so the mess that was in there in the first place doesn't doesn't see its way into the final draft because that's often what happens. You see all kinds of crud from the early drafts make it in the final one, and why do they get there? Only because you started with the same document. You know, yeah, they were, the, and, they were the cobwebs in the corner, and you, and you didn't even notice they're the woodwork. You didn't even notice them in your second draft. Yeah, and I think if if you try to just write top to bottom versus versus this iterative process of thinking through, getting getting the ideas on the page, and then cleaning them up, um, if you're just trying to write top to bottom, it's it's much harder to spot those um, exactly, those issues, exactly. the spaghetti. And, yeah, and you raise you know I'll bring in my keeping it smart chapter as well as. Neuroscience shows that insight, and that's the real great stuff, right? Insight is combining yeah. what what one when one neuroscientist I interviewed said was dim and distant connections in the brain. That's where the smart stuff comes from. That doesn't come immediately, and it doesn't come easily, and it may come in the shower, and it, you know it may come when you're consciously working on it. But he also found that that often comes when you're relaxed. Well, when are you most relaxed? When you're writing to liver or writing to think? You better be doing when you're writing to think. That's when that good stuff is going to come. It's not really going to come when you're writing to liver. Oh, yeah, it does. Deadlines matter. Yeah, deadlines can help you deliver good stuff. But uh, anyway, I, I recommend that yeah. as, as a separation of duties. I'm, I'm trying to remember the uh, who it was. I think it's Pythagoras that figured out um, how to... How to um, figure out the purity of of gold and as the story goes as it's told in the movie pie which is a rather disturbing movie um 
he was he was he was trying to figure this out and trying to figure this out and trying to figure this out. And his wife said, go take a bath. And he went uh, yeah, right. and he took a bath, which is a place where you would naturally be relaxed. It's hard to be working on your equations in the bath. Um, and as he was sitting there in the bath, he realized that he was displacing a certain amount of water. And it said that he said, Eureka. Yeah, and, right. Right, and he right, jumped right. out of the tub and he realized that if he could figure out water displacement, he could figure out the purity of gold. Right, right, um, right. And I note, you know, keeping on our subject of what the science says is that when you have an insight, you activate a whole different part of your brain than you activate when you're just getting information. A whole different part of your brain. It's on the right side, about right here. It just suddenly glows with all this electricity. And people don't, the scientists don't exactly know why, but it's a very special thing. And that does not happen if you're just, you know, basically going step one, step two, step three, all of a sudden you need to, you know, you're, you're leaping to someplace else. And when you leap to someplace else, either when you're writing, and this can happen to you as a reader, obviously too, when you're writing, leaping to that place is something you want to, you want to make happen. And, and, and the research again has shown that the reward circuit really cranks when you get a, get an idea from insight from the dim and distant coming across the brain in a networked way that nobody understands right now. You know, our, our brain has 86 billion neurons and trillions of synapses. It's, it's a remarkable thing. So let them work, let them work, let them do their magic. Excellent. Well, before we, and so, so you have an extra freebie uh, that we'll tell people about in just a minute, along with the book, which I highly, highly recommend. But before we get there, what's your biggest takeaway after all your psychology and neuroscience research into writing and writing for impact? Yeah, my biggest takeaway, I, you know, I just want to re restate, it's my mantra, reward your reader, you know, think about rewarding your reader. But, but in addition to that, um, because we've talked about stories and we've talked about the other S's, is that Remember, there's there's seven other ways supported by science besides story to really please your reader, to really get them engaged. And so uh, you don't always have to default to story as being the only solution to 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 ratchet up that piece of work to the to the next level. Look at some of these other S's because they are important too. Yeah, you can you can create the symphony with a story, but you can also create some great music with just one, two, or three other instruments, they're, they're all very powerful. And they're all shown by science to, to make that dopamine flow and, and hopefully, hopefully create some of those, those enjoyable um, other uh, neurotransmitters, uh, the release of those. Excellent, excellent. Uh, so the book is Writing for Impact, Eight Secrets from Science. It will fire up your reader's brains. We'll include a link in the description with this episode uh, to go grab that book. And also, I will include a link to, on Bill's website, he has a workbook associated with this to put uh, what you learn, those eight strategies, into practice. And he's offering it for free to you. You join his email list and you email him a copy of your receipt from buying the book because the workbook's going to work best with the lessons in the book. And, um, and you'll get a free copy of that workbook. So that link will be in the description as well. Bill, do you want to give any more insight into um, into the workbook? I know we've covered the book in quite some Yeah, time. yeah. The, the workbook is valuable because it because it, it basically has pictures in color and and uh, it will inspire you, I think, to a, gr a greater degree than just black and white pages, which is mostly what 
you know, books are these days. So yeah, I get the workbook. I also put, you know, the workbook I wrote after the book. And so to, to reiterate what we've just been talking about, I think I actually did better in engaging readers in the workbook because I had that much more time to go from writing to think to writing to deliver. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, I, I strongly recommend both of them. Uh, the links are in the description to grab those. Bill Burchard, thank you so much for agreeing to come Absolutely. and talk to a bunch of copywriters on how to write for impact. Totally my pleasure. Totally my pleasure. Yes. Thanks, Roy. Thank you. And for all my all our listeners or viewers here, however you are engaging with this episode, thank you as well. And I will catch you again in the next episode. See you soon. Thank you once again for tuning in to this daily episode of Breakthrough Marketing Secrets. Remember, check out the links with this episode for even more value. Now make sure you like, comment, share, subscribe, and engage in every way you can to keep this show going and growing and delivering daily value to you. I'll catch you soon for your next big breakthrough.